those uh, verses that we just heard read from uh, John 1, verses uh, 14 and 16. Those verses were written by the Apostle John, who was discipled by Jesus. Now, among the many men that the uh, Apostle John poured into and discipled, one of them was an influential man named Polycarp, uh, and he would become a martyr in the church. But before Polycarp was killed, uh, he became an old preacher, and in his congregation sat a young man uh, that was named Irenaeus. Aren't ancient names awesome? Polycarp, Irenaeus. So Irenaeus would become the Bishop of Lyons, France, and he would write a very influential work for the formation of early Christian theology, and it's called Against Heresies. And one of the main heretical ideas that, that Irenaeus argued against was this idea that God must be invisible and unknowable. If there's a God, he must be invisible and unknowable. And Irenaeus replies to that by saying, of course God is invisible and beyond our comprehension, but always with the invisible and incomprehensible Father has been the Word, the wisdom of God through whom everything was made. And the entire purpose of creation was to make God known to those who he made in his image. And more importantly, the advent of Jesus, Christmas itself, is meant to make God known. And present. Now he says this. Listen to this quote. He says, Now this is his word, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in the last times was made man among men, that he might join the end to the beginning, that is, man to God. The prophets, receiving their prophetic gift from the same word, announced his advent, the word of God foretelling from the beginning that God should be seen by men and hold converse with them upon the earth, should confer with them, and should be present with his own creation, saving it, and becoming capable of being perceived by it, in order that man, having embraced the Spirit of God, might pass into the glory of the Father. I love that. And, and, and Irenaeus, he, he, after, after that explanation of saying how God is, has made himself knowable and perceivable, he, he loves to talk about this idea of seeing God. He says this, The glory of God gives life. Those who see God receive life. For this reason, God, who cannot be grasped, comprehended, or seen, who allows himself to be seen, comprehended, and grasped by men, that he may give life to those who see and receive him. Life comes from participation in God, while participation in God is to see God and enjoy his goodness. Now, in my more artistic moments, I love the imagery of beholding God as the means of life seeing God. But in my more practical moments, I'm like, what does that mean? How do I do that? I mean, it seems really important from what Irenaeus is saying. And so I want to know how to see that which is unseeable. Well, Irenaeus has a lot more to say about that, but I've already read you way too much from him. But let's see what his grandfather in the faith has to say. The Apostle John tells us that when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, we beheld his 
glory. Ah, okay. So now we're getting somewhere, right? Because to behold God, we behold his glory. But how do we behold his glory? Well, to know that, it would be helpful to know what glory is. And John helps us uh, with that too, because he says, how does he describe glory in these verses? He says, it is full of grace and truth. And from this fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So intimately tied to this glory is the concept of grace. But before we go too far down that road, which we'll come back to, I want to see what glory is in a more general sense. And my over, uh, I'll give you my oversimplified definition of glory before I show you where I get it from. I put this in your bulletin too. Okay, so glory is the manifestation of God's unique greatness. The manifestation of God's unique greatness. So when Isaiah has that incredible vision of God's throne room, and, and, and the, in there the seraphim are calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his... Yeah. You might expect him, though, to say holiness. I mean, he says, holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his... But then he says glory. Because glory is holiness made known, manifest. And God's holiness is his utterly unique greatness. To be holy, as you may have learned, is to be set apart, to be separate. God is infinitely great and worthy and beautiful. And when when this is made known or manifested, we call it glory. Glory is the manifestation of God's unique greatness. So that when people, and they leave encounters in the New Testament with Jesus utterly transformed, and the Bible tells us that they go on their way glorifying God because they are making known His unique greatness through what He has done for them. And that's why glory can be talked about in all these different ways in the Bible, right? Whenever in the Christmas story, the glory of God shines around the angels. So it's this light shining around angels. But then in Psalm 19, it says creation declares the glory of God. Because both of these ideas are manifestations of God's unique greatness. And so, of course, at Christmas... We sing, you know, Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in that he says, mild he lays his glory by. Right? Sorry, excuse my singing. But like, he, 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 he lays his glory by, Charles Wesley says. Which is true to an extent. But also in that song, it repeats multiple times, what? Glory to the newborn king. Wesley understood that though Jesus laid his glory aside in one sense, His coming manifested the glory of God in different yet amazing ways. And the first thing I think of, you know, whenever I when I think of glory in in, outside of a Christian context, the first thing I think of is uh, Brad Pitt in Troy, the movie Troy, playing Achilles, and he fights against Troy for one reason: glory. He wants great glory. Achilles, he wants his unique greatness as a warrior to be made known. He wants great glory. And I suppose that there is some glory in conquering your enemies. But where Achilles piled up dead bodies, Jesus does something far more glorious. 
You see, there is a more thorough way of defeating enemies, isn't there? Think about it. An enemy is someone who stands in opposition to you. If you kill them, sure, they're no longer in your way, but that's it. But if you change them, if you make them friends and allies, then they're not only no longer in your way, they're helping you to advance. It's a much more incredible and powerful and glorious way of conquering, and that is how Jesus does it. And that is, it's in that spirit that we seek to fight with Christ, not like Achilles with, with weapons and vengeance, but with love and forgiveness and truth and grace to advance God's kingdom, winning enemies of God as eternal friends. It takes strength, great strength, to love your enemies. It takes even greater strength to sacrifice for them. And it takes incomparable power to raise them to life and to win them to your side. Jesus shows us true and great glory. Glory is sacrifice. Glory is grace. And that's what I want you to see is that nowhere is our God's unique greatness manifested more than in His grace. His grace expressed through Jesus. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6 tells us that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Listen, to the praise of the glory of His grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. God's grace in Jesus is the manifestation of God's unique greatness. So what does the Bible mean by grace? What do we mean by grace? Let me attempt another definition for you here. I put this one in your bulletin too. Grace is initiative-taking, powerful love toward those who deserve the opposite. Let me show you how I get that definition. Ephesians 2, 4-5 through says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Do you see it? We were dead, and God made us alive together with Christ. God took the initiative when we could do nothing. But you also see that it's motivated by great love in that verse. And that love, it's expressed in power, power to make us alive. But notice that that kind of death we were in, it's dead in our trespasses. We were undeserving of this love. In fact, we deserve the opposite. And Paul summarizes all of this by saying, "What by grace you have been saved. So grace is the initiative-taking, powerful love of God toward those of us who deserve the opposite. And there's a beautiful picture of this in the Old Testament. God called his prophet Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. And in order to vividly, he did this in order to vividly portray his relationship to his people. And we don't know much about what Gomer was like before they married, but we know that after they married, Gomer was entrenched in prostitution and adultery. And this is how God felt about his people who had become idolatrous. And in Hosea 2, one of the most 
beautiful passages in the Bible. God is speaking through Hosea with this double meaning, the two layers of Hosea's relationship to his adulterous bride and God's relationship to his idolatrous people. And he lists out the evils that they've done against him, saying in verse 13, she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And then right after that, in verse 14, he says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Did you catch that? She left me and forgot me to go after her other lovers. Therefore, I will love her and allure her. This is God's grace. Alluring his adulterous bride. Hanging on a cross, loving those who despise him. It's not brought about by how great we are. It is God's initiative taking love. Grace means nobody can say I earned my right standing with God. But grace also means nobody can say my sins are too great or too many to be a Christian, to be right with God. Grace removes self-exaltation and it removes self-condemnation. Grace is beautiful, awe-inspiring good news. And grace is the manifestation of God's unique greatness. It is glory. Grace truly is unique. Every other religion says, clean up your act and then come. Jesus says, come be with me and I'll clean you up as we go. Other religious founders claim to show the way to God or another higher power or whatever. Jesus says, I am the way. This is why Christianity is so unique in its ability to speak to those who speak a message of hope to to the hopeless. For for losers and failures. All other philosophies and religions just say, live right. Do these certain things. Don't do these other certain things. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Jump through these hoops. And that all sounds great to those who uh, are prideful and self-righteous who feel like they have it all together. But what about those who don't have it all together? What about those who have tried and failed? Or those who are oppressed? Those who are lost and can't seem to find their way? Those who are burdened by guilt and incapable of climbing their way out of the hole that they've dug themselves into? Those who have lived so long in sin that their future on earth is far too short to atone for all that they've done wrong, even if they wanted to. To failures, losers, other religions and philosophies, they have nothing to say to these people. What can they say? Uh, You know, just do it. Just be better. I don't know what else to say. Christ alone offers hope to these people. He offers himself. God's grace opens our eyes to see that we are all that type of person I've described. The desperate and the needy 
so that through faith we look to Christ and we depend on him for life. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the introduction to the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story, an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. The incarnation is a beautiful expression of grace and the uniqueness of Christianity, of Jesus. God was not content to be distant and unknowable. He wasn't content to step back from all of the mess. He came down into it. He made himself knowable and known. And he took the initiative and he condescended to be with us, to be one of us, to bear our burdens. And you know, we are... We're so prone to just want to keep to ourselves and not get involved, particularly when some person or situation will be messy or draining or costly. The Bible is full of these kind of people, people who are reluctant and apathetic. Moses kept insisting he wasn't capable to do what God was calling him to do. Gideon was, was called to deliver Israel from the Midianites as he's hiding from them, and he's so fearful of getting involved that he keeps postponing by putting God to the test. And Jonah, he failed to recognize his own standing with God as holy due to grace. And so he refused to see God bless his enemies. And he ran away in the opposite direction from the mission of God's grace that he had called him to. And when God calls Isaiah, he gives him this message to the leaders of Israel that they are rebels. And one of the main charges he brings against them is that they do not defend the fatherless. And the plea of the widow never comes before them. And centuries later, when Jesus is confronting religious leaders, he says something similar. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, in our sin and selfishness, we are hesitant and reluctant, and, and worse, apathetic towards suffering and sin and lostness in our world. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to get involved. We want to keep to ourselves. Because if you get involved, it could cost you. It could cost time. It could cost energy and money. You could be hurt emotionally or even physically. It's better to just distance ourselves, isolate ourselves. That's what we tell ourselves. But praise God that he did the exact opposite of that. Advent teaches us that Jesus saw the mess that we had gotten ourselves into, and he saw how we rebelled against him and harmed one another. He heard the cries of the oppressed, and he saw the injustice of the oppressors, and he did not keep to himself. He came down. And he got involved, even though he knew it would kill him. That is grace. Notice verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is the most succinct and important description of what Christmas means. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. 
But the way John says this is more significant than we may catch it first. You may have heard that he uses a, a, a unique word for setting up a tent or a tabernacle here uh, when he says he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory. John is clearly using Old Testament imagery here of the tabernacle, which was built under, it was a big tent built under the leadership of Moses. And, and that was where God, the glory of God settled personal presence, what some call the Shekinah glory. That's where he, that glory dwelled with his people. But in that tabernacle, in that tabernacle, the people of God were separated from that presence, that glory, in significant and intentional ways. Because the gravity of our sin was so great that there was a rift between us, a division between humanity and God. But John is telling us here at the beginning of his gospel that the glory of God's personal presence that filled the tabernacle is fully revealed in this person, this man, Jesus. No more barriers of separation. He's come to us. As Irenaeus said, Jesus united God and man in himself that he might bring humanity to God. See, he brought his glory to us so that we could be transformed by it. And it is powerful grace. We are all, as you look around this room, we're all trophies of that grace, of his glory. We behold his glory by beholding his grace. And we see his grace at work in people who once were dead in transgressions made alive in Christ. Once held captive to sin, set free through the Spirit. Once brokenhearted and double-minded, made whole in Christ Jesus. Once rebels, made friends of God. Once evil, made righteous. Once prideful, made humble. Once apathetic, made passionate. You see this in the community of saved sinners around you, and you see it in your own salvation and heart, and you remind yourself of it. And above all, you dwell on the one behind it all, a God become human, to be the human being we are all called to be, but perpetually fail to be, who took into himself all of the wreckage and evil and sin and death that we have unleashed on this good world, to remove it. To conquer it. To, and and to, to rise from the dead in glory and invite us into that glorious life. And that is how all this connects to hope. You see, our Advent theme this week is hope. And here's how the Bible brings this together. Romans 5.2 says, Through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. By grace, we hope in the glory of God. Put another way, and more, perhaps more well-known, Colossians 1.27 says, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You may have missed it in that long quote by Irenaeus, but he taught that the goal of Advent was that man might pass into the glory of the Father. 
He's saying that the humanity Jesus rescued would participate in the glorious life of the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father. You see, our hope, our hope is much more than just a general optimism. It's much more than even the prospect of life after death. It's even much more than the idea of a pain-free, stress-free existence. Our hope is the hope of glory. The glorious and holistic renewal of all creation and, and the perfection of all that has fallen. And humanity is the most important part of that glorious renewal because God created us as images of himself. Who we are as human beings is his glory because we are manifestations of his unique greatness. Kind of like how statues glorify the great men that they're made in the image of. We are like statues that have been vandalized through our sin and selfishness and rebellion and brokenness. We vandalize the image of God in ourselves and in others. We are vandals and we're vandalized. Now, a vandalized statue, it still does what it's intended to do to an extent, doesn't it? I mean, it still gives glory to its subject, just not as, as much or in the way it's intended to. The vandalism, it's distracting. And it's distorting the image. It needs to be restored to properly glorify the one whose image it was made in. And one day, we will be fully restored to the image of God in the way he always intended. And, and that is what Paul hopes for when he says from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our hope is that we, along with all things, will be transformed by and for his glory. And in ways that we can't even comprehend, we get to be a part of that. There's this amazing verse in, in Ephesians 2 that always blows me away. It, has, it's, it says that in the coming ages, he says that the reason God raised us up with Jesus is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is mind-blowing when you think about it. I mean, think about if the most profitable company, I think it's Apple. I don't, I don't know anymore. I think it's Apple. If that's the most profitable company, they voted. Their board of directors voted. They decided that we are going to dedicate all of our billions of profits every year toward making you happy, showing you kindness. You'd be pretty excited about that, right? Well, here God, whose riches are immeasurable, you can't measure them. The one who shaped you and made you and knows you precisely, perfectly, knows how to make you happier than anything because he made you. He wants to display those immeasurable riches of his grace by showing you kindness in Christ in the coming ages, meaning eternity. Remember, what glory is, putting on display his unique greatness. His grace is his eternal glory, and we are the recipients. This is our great hope. 
This is our hope when life seems hopeless. When we're suffering. And it's hardest to hope. Paul says this incredible thought in 2 Corinthians 4. He calls our suffering in this life this light, momentary affliction. Which he says is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. He says that as we look to Christ in affliction, it prepares us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. This glory is weighty. It's eternal. It's beyond all comparison. And it is prepared for us precisely through looking to the things that are unseen rather than the things that are seen. As we live in affliction. That's what he says. So beholding His glory and grace is how we actively hope in this life. It is also the means by which we're changed. John says later when he wrote a letter that whenever God, that we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when Jesus appears, when He comes back, we will be like Him. Why? Because we shall see Him as He is. He's saying that we are are experiencing in there, he says we're experiencing this grace right now as beloved children of God. But one day, he will come again and we will be like him because we will see him. The seeing is the means by which we will be made like him. In the future, yes, but it's the same now. As we hope, we look. Yes, we look, yeah, through, through a, gla- a dim glass, of course, but we look and we behold His glory. With, we, we fix the eyes of our hearts on Him who went to such infinite depths to free us from sin and its condemnation. And through beholding His glorious grace, we receive grace. Grace upon grace. I think that's what John is getting at when he says that we beheld His glory And from his fullness, we received grace upon grace. It's through beholding his glory, glory full of grace, that we receive grace upon grace. Paul puts it this way. He says, beholding his glory with unveiled face, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And the eyes that see this glory are the eyes of faith. Faith is the only suitable means of receiving grace because it is the humble disposition of trusting Him to do what we know we cannot do. To be for us what we know we cannot be. And the thing is, this, isn't, this, is, this extends throughout all our life. It's not just the means by which we are converted. Grace is how we continue to live a life of following Christ. The word grace is talked about a lot. It's like in the New Testament 122 times. The Judaizers, in Paul's day, they hated it. Afraid that people would abuse it as soon as they could. According to them, these people are weak and want to do whatever they want. They'll just, they would say, continue in sin that grace may abound. And the same in Martin Luther's day. During the Reformation, he tried to recover the gospel of grace. And the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops, they hated it. 
People will never strive after God with you preaching grace. They're lazy and sinful. And today even people contest, if to grow in Christ, you just keep telling yourself how graciously loved and accepted you are, that doesn't seem like to be the best way to make progress. Maybe the motivation of moralism and religion is negative, but at least it's effective. You know you have to obey God because if you don't, he won't answer your prayers or love you as much or take you to heaven. If you remove this fear and talk about unmerited grace, love, and acceptance, what incentive will people have to live a good life? Seems like this gospel way of living won't produce people that are faithful or diligent to obey God's will. But think about that. If you've lost, if when you have lost all fear of punishment, you also lose all incentive to live an obedient life, then what was your motivation in the first place? Fear. Fear was your motivation, or perhaps obligation. But the incentive of grace is faith and grateful love. And it's much more powerful than fear and obligation. What the Judaizers of Paul's day didn't get and what the Catholic Church of Martin Luther's day didn't get is that what truly changes us is not just a more persistent effort to follow moral rules. All true lasting change comes from deepening your understanding of the gracious salvation in Christ and living out the changes that understanding creates in your heart, and through loving and trusting the God who is at work in you. Faith in the gospel of grace, it it restructures us. It restructures our motivations, our identity and self-understanding, our view of the world, and mere behavioral compliance to rules without heart change will just be superficial and fleeting. But Christ, he actually changes hearts. He lives in us and works through us. Remember what Paul said is the hope of glory? Christ in you. That is your only hope of glory. And it is a sure hope. He tells us, Jesus tells us in John 15 that he is the vine and we are the branches and apart from him we can do what? Nothing. Our part is to abide in him and he promises us that that abiding will bear fruit. We fill our eyes, our hearts, our minds with the glory of his grace. And we surround ourselves with the trophies of his grace. To see it at work. And we pray and we long for grace to transform more and more lives. And we thank Him for His grace in our life. And we praise His glory and we confess our sins and remind ourselves that His grace is sufficient for us. And we look to this gloriously gracious Christ, this God-man who is revealed to us through the Scriptures because His glory is transformative when we behold it with eyes of faith. It changes us, conforms us into that glory, a glory that's full of grace and truth so that when we see Him stepping out of His comfortable heavens to be born in a manger, it moves us to get involved, to step out of comfort and into the mess to love, 
And when we see him, his grace at work in our lives, recognizing that we have earned none of it, we start to become gracious with the sinners in our lives. And when we see him not just conquering his enemies, but sacrificing himself for them and winning them as friends. We want to win enemies as friends through love. And when we see his promise to glorify his name throughout the earth, we hope in that glory and we pursue it and we rejoice in it. So this holiday season, don't just settle for feeling warm and nostalgic. Remember his grace. Behold his glory. Hope in our glorious Christ. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for your incredible grace through your Son. Help us to look to him as our only and sure hope, our glorious hope. Keep us from ever feeling as though we don't need grace or are beyond grace. Instead, humble us and make us grateful. And let us see the manifestation of your unique greatness through your initiative-taking, powerful love toward us who deserve the opposite. And as we look to this glorious grace, shape us and form us into who you are calling us to be through your Spirit's life in us. We pray all of this in Jesus' glorious, gracious name. Amen.